Allen. Swung on. There it goes. Deep left. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Number 62 to set the new American League record. Aaron Judge hits his 62nd. All the Yankees out of the dugout to greet him. Just think of it. Three Yankee right fielders. The Babe hitting 60 and 27. The Jolly Roger hitting 61 and 61. And now Aaron Judge hits his 62nd home run. The most home runs any American leaguer has hit in a single season. And the American League has been alive for 120 years. This is Judgment Day. Case closed. Hey now, welcome to the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. It is October 5th, 2022. It is season 12, episode number 8, I believe. Maybe 7, 7 or 8. Uh, and we have a great show for you today. Um, October 2011. Uh, right around this time, college football season was in the swing, and OU had a problem at running back. They didn't have one healthy. They needed a guy, and they went to a walk-on named Dominique Whaley. And uh, Dominique had some really great success. And it's a really interesting story. He kind of went from working at Subway and not being on scholarship to getting a scholarship and being a great player on the field for OU. And a newer sports writer at Sports Illustrated was assigned uh, to the story. And I had him on and really enjoyed him. And then the next month, his friend from college at Harvard, uh, Jeremy Lin, blew up. And he was everywhere. And we had a great time having him on the show during that period. And he was on after that. And then he hadn't been on for a while. And I reached out to him to get him on last year. And we agreed to do it on a Wednesday. And I put it in my address book as Thursday by mistake. And I, and I missed it. It was on me. Uh, my mistake. And we never got back to it. And I got sick. And finally, he's on today. Uh, we welcome Pablo Torre uh, from ESPN back to the podcast. Also kind of another routine return E. And that's Steve Hyden, uh, who used to be the music critic at Grantland. And he would come on and talk music whenever he had a good article there. Uh, he wrote a really cool book called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me. And we had him on then. And he has a new book about Pearl Jam, uh, which has been part of the book club of the month. And he's on as well. He had a bad connection. And I did my best to edit around it. Um, so my apologies there. But sometimes, and it was weird because he was at his house. Uh, I, I would never be able to put up with my cell phone connection being as bad in my house as his is, but uh, Steve will join us after the uh, book club update. Uh, we'll update the book club. We'll do one last thing at all. I want to talk a little bit about Italian American Heritage Month. And one last thing I know everyone loves uh, when I talk about being Italian. First things first, though, a couple things I want to talk about. Tough loss for the Saints in London on Sunday. Um, will Lutz attempted two 60-yard field goals in the fourth quarter. He made the first one, 
and uh, tried another one at the gun to tie the game, uh, and it hit the upright and double doinked, hit the upright and then hit the crossbar and didn't go through. Tough loss. Uh, The Saints played better, I think. They haven't played well so far. They put a little bit better. Uh, They have to stick with Andy Dalton for now and let Jameis get healthy uh, because the offense was much better without him, and there was no Kamara and no Thomas. So I'd like to see a Dalton game with Kamara and Thomas. Ultimately, I want Jameis to have the job, but I want him to be healthy because he was not healthy the first few weeks, and he was standing in the pocket too long probably because he couldn't run. And he's taken too many sacks, and uh, I think we need to give Dalton the reins here for a couple weeks, let Jameis heal up. That's my thought. Tough loss, too many penalties, too many turnovers. They lead the league in penalties, and they lead the league in turnovers, and that's losing football. And uh, that's why a team as talented as they are are 1-3 and three right now, uh, because they're shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, way too many penalties. I didn't like some of the penalties that were called against them, uh, but that is every team, every game, and good teams overcome. The mistakes and bad teams don't. And right now, uh, unfortunately, the Saints are a bad team. And that's just what it is. Uh, I still think there's plenty of talent to be a better team and maybe even a good team. Uh, But if they fumble two times a game and commit 10 plus penalties a game, it will will never be. Uh, and, And Dennis Allen has had a rough start. I thought he really brutally mismanaged the clock at the end of the game uh, the other day. Uh, so, and he's made some bad decisions. Um, I think he's been bad so far, uh, and we see why he didn't work as head coach initially. Uh, he, we miss Sean Payton, but of course we were going to miss Sean Payton, right? I mean, he's the best coach we've ever had, probably the best coach we will ever had. He's a potential Hall of Fame coach, uh, and a guy who hasn't been a head coach in a long time like Dennis Allen, who deserved the job. Don't get me wrong, he, he, he was the hire. Uh, he earned the chance to have the job, just hasn't been great yet. And again, I, I still think he could be good. He just hasn't yet. Uh, so that's the Saints. Um, baseball playoff start. I want to talk about the Braves and the Mets real quick. So the Braves did a great job sweeping the Mets in Atlanta, took control of the division, clinched it last night. And think about what a huge, insane difference this makes, right? So now the Braves don't have to play this weekend. The playoffs start Friday. It's a best of three series. All games are at home. Uh, But the Braves don't have to play that, and they will play the winner of the St. Louis uh, series. And St. Louis, I believe, plays the Phillies. Play the winner of that in the DS round, right? The Mets now have to play that series in City Field, three games. They'll play the Padres, who are dangerous. A lot of top-end talent on the Padres. They'll play them. If they survive that, then they have to go to L.A. and play the Dodgers. So a much more difficult path. Again, I'm not saying the Mets couldn't make the World Series. It's just a much more difficult path now than the Braves, who erased a 10.5 game lead to win their fifth straight division title. And as a fan of the team, I've really had fun this year. Uh, Almost more fun than I had last year. They were, until the playoffs, the Braves were not a great team last year, right? They only won, I think, 88 or 89 games last year and were the benefit of a weak division and snuck in and got hot and won it which was great, and the playoffs are awesome. It was a fantastic ride. Uh, but playing 75-32 and 32 baseball, basically, like they did since June 1st, it's been a really fun summer, and they're a cool team. And I'm excited to have Acuna in the playoffs. He wasn't there last year. Uh, Dansby Swanson and um, Olsen went 
back-to-back-to-back three games with home runs. The first two Braves players uh, to hit home runs in all three games of the series in like since the 40s or something. Insane. Um, so a fun team, and uh, I love Max Freed. Hopefully Spencer Strider's ready for playoffs. Uh, unfortunately, Soroka had to be shut down again. Uh, he won't be there. Soroka and Mike Thomas are uh, one of each on my teams, just never available seemingly. Um, but yeah, the playoffs are here, and I'm excited for them, and I guess I'll throw some predictions out for the wild card rounds. Uh, I think the best of the wild card battles is Seattle in Toronto. That really interests me for whatever reason. And there's something about this Seattle team that's got a lot of juice, uh, but I think they're a year away. I'll give it to Toronto in three. Uh, then the other one is Cleveland and Tampa Bay, which is the exact opposite. I, I'm just not interested. Uh, Tampa Bay is boring. Uh, Cleveland is boring. Uh, I don't know much about either team. Um, I haven't watched them much this year, if at all. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to know much about them. Uh, but I'll pick Tampa Bay uh, in three, uh, just giving them the edge based on postseason experience, maybe. I don't know. I don't know a lot about those teams. I'm not going to pretend to. Uh, but for the fun of making a prediction, uh, I'll pick Tampa Bay in three. Uh, the NL, the league I watch and know a lot more about, um, I think that the pressure on the Mets is enormous and that San Diego is going to pick them off. Um, I love the Mets top starters uh but look at when you burn a 10 and a half game lead and you're a 100 win team and seemingly no one enjoyed it right i mean it's really too bad for mets fans they win 100 plus games and nobody enjoyed the team the last at least 60 days right i mean all you hear about is what a collapse it was and how bad they are and typical mets and the mets this and the mets that and I think just the pressure of that, and um, I, I just think San Diego is going to pick them off. I'll pick San Diego in two. And then the last one is the Phillies and the Cardinals. And the Cardinals, I think, are just much better. Um, and they have two absolute studs in the middle of that lineup, uh, two MVP candidates. So I'll pick the Cardinals in three. I'll give the Phillies a game uh, in that one. So let's see how that plays out, see how I do. Uh, probably over four. Uh, but I'm excited. I love baseball playoffs. Love this time of the year, uh, and get really excited to uh, to watch the games. Love the late inning drama. Uh, love the walk offs. Love the crowds. It's just a great time of the year. Love the pitching performances. Uh, nothing beats the baseball playoffs. And I love the day games, which I love about the wild card. Uh, when I was a kid, and I would rush home, and I was watching the A's then. You know, this is like even before I started watching the Braves every day on TBS. But I'd rush home to watch the Braves or to watch the A's in the Toronto uh, series or whatever. And it'd be on at 3 o'clock and, and watching those ALCS games in the middle of the day. Just absolutely love that. Love day playoff baseball. It's unbelievable. To think that they had day World Series games once upon a time um, is something that in modern sports could never happen today. Uh, but I think it's missed. Um, I know some people don't like the day games, you know, you got to work or whatever. You can't watch them. You can't go to them. Uh, I get the drawbacks, but I just love it. There's a, there's a charm to it. And um, I'm looking forward to, to the playoffs, playoffs starting. Um, But I think that's it for now. Uh, It's a great show. I can't wait for you to hear this Pablo Torre interview. Uh, That's next. Then we'll take a break. We'll do the book club. 
We'll come back with Stephen Hyden, and then I'll be back for one last thing and some plugs and all that. Oh, well, well no, you know, I'll save for plugs. Uh, let's just stop there. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Pablo Torre. Our first guest today made his first appearance on the podcast back in October of 2011 when he was a writer for Sports Illustrated. Today he appears on Around the Horn and has a podcast called ESPN Daily and a show on ESPN Digital called Debatable. And uh, he's a really great dude who I'm really excited to have back. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Pablo Torre. Welcome back, Pablo. How you doing, man? Steven, it is so good to be back. It feels like it's been possibly literally forever since <laughs> I last talked to you. So thank you for having me. Well, you just got all busy going and being a star and all that. You know what I mean? Oh, so, yeah. Sure, so listen to this. Sure. So I looked this up. The first time you were on uh, was October of 2011 when you wrote about Dominique Whaley at Oklahoma <laughs> in Sports Illustrated. Okay. So that was our first Man. time. Do you remember yeah. who was on the cover of that? edition of sports oh great question <laughs> i know that dominique whaley was not on the cover he got reduced to like one of those cover lines yeah he's on the top uh, if that, next to the mlb right. playoffs yep. oh my god 2011 uh, Ugh, i i wish i i wish i knew the answer to this i'm gonna be mad when you tell me you who will. was it nascar's dream chase jimmy johnson cranks it up Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. It's kind of a I cool believe cover, it was, actually. It's just Lars kind of Anderson? Lars, Lars Anderson, Anderson wrote that one? Yes, he yep, did. Yep. Yeah. I visually, the blue, I yep. can see it now. Mm-hmm. You got it. Um, You're on it. Yep. Dominique Whaley. Dude, I didn't realize, I, of course, I remember now our conversation, but the idea that my story about a walk-on Oklahoma running back being the reason we talked first <laughs> is a very funny footnote in my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we, we started in January of 2011, and at that time uh obviously sports illustrated was still you know something that came to my house every thursday and i would take it out of the mailbox and i look okay who's been on who hasn't been on because i had unlocked this kind of interesting thing back then which i'm not a genius or anything but i realized that if you had one person's email at sports illustrated you had everyone's because it was just <laughs> like you know uh, their first name letter and then their name at imail.com or something like that you know yep so yeah. I would just go through it and be like, okay, I haven't had paid uh, Pablo on, but I know his email now. So I'll email him and say, you know, uh, hey, I had all your colleagues on and people would come on. So that's how that happened. And um, and then a cool thing about connecting when we did is during the madness of Linsanity, which is really interesting because the documentary is coming out uh, like right. next week on HBO Max. But um, I think it's HBO Max. One of the streamers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. No, it's on HBO. Yeah. Okay, right? good. All right. So um, we were, you were, you were on both times, and it was really interesting because the one time, because he was on back to back covers, and you'd written both of them. Just for people who don't know, uh, Jeremy mm. Lin was on back to back weeks on the cover, and you had been on after the first one, and then we had scheduled you to come back on, and you messaged me the day before and be like, "Hey, just so you know, he's on the cover again." But it's not going to be announced till like six o'clock, and I think we were talking at like eleven o'clock, and we realized, well, it's not going to go up till right. the next day anyway, so it's okay to discuss that. And um, no, I was just looking back at all that stuff, and it was really interesting. 
uh, to yeah. see. Oh my god! Kind of. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a credit to you, really, that. Um, like I said, that we haven't talked in so long because you've just been so damn busy blowing up. And I don't mean no, that as like yeah. you were – I don't mean like you were big-timing me or anything like that. I just literally mean like you were huge. You were being huge. So No, well, this is, this is, this is what happened. And part of it is like it is it – is, it has been way too long objectively. Um, but the second thing is that we would DM right. here and there always planning and then always something coming up on yeah. my end. But the idea of – And I screwed up big uh, one time too, by the way. We okay, had... no, we don't have to – we don't, we, don't we, we don't have to blame yourself. On <laughs> no, your there was one that was we, my fault the for ledger sure. Was even. The ledger was <laughs> even. Exactly. We had a day. It yeah. didn't work out. Yeah. But we've done both of that to each other. But yeah. the point is that like you were absolutely there on the ground floor. I was. Or whatever yeah. the hell happened happened to yeah. me um and so i am always appreciative of the fact that you are interested literally off of a byline that i don't think anybody else in my family remembers let alone um, <laughs> good old dominic that, so. it's a great story though by the way i rewrote it last i night. love that yeah that's a great story i good love that story working yeah, at subway yeah. working at subway no scholarship and battles that's right, way up that's the right. long before russell wilson was trying to sell us Spicy Subway sandwiches. That's right. That's right. Dominique Whaley was literally a sandwich artist. <laughs> he was. Yes. He was quite the artist there. Um, yeah, that's a great story. And I'll link it, actually, if anyone wants to check it out, because um, it's on SI Vault, um, which is yeah, a cool please. site, because you can actually read it without running your articles out. No, <laughs> my, my former like... life. Yeah. My former life is thankfully archived. I mean, it took so long for the SI Vault to get into searchable shape, but it seems like the links work. Um, and so, you know, everything that's happened to me since, and by the way, like that second insanity cover story is really, I mean, you identified an interesting and I think valid inflection point where everything did get kind of out of control. Hey, it was um, Even just assigning yeah. that second cover story, it was like, hey, can you turn this around in a day? And then from there, it was it was just uh, a giant blur, really. Into I got hired by ESPN later that year, um, right. 2012, and it's now you're talking to me, uh, Stephen. Like it's October 2022. I got hired 10 years ago this month, and so all of this is very weirdly symmetrical, actually. Yeah, and um, it was really interesting too because you had went uh, to Harvard with uh, Jeremy. and kind of had I guess a relationship like that, and I guess you were both Asian, which I guess is. People mm-hmm. equate that to, oh, we must have Pablo do that or whatever. But it really, it was a really interesting time in New York. And it was incredible because I remember every night it was like, he can't do that again tonight. And then he did, he did it again tonight. Yeah, it's, he it, was did almost, it again tonight. It was almost yeah. like, I remember when I was a kid, Die Manningly had like hit a home run in like eight straight games or something like that, or nine straight games or whatever it was. And I just remember me and my grandfather every every day, we would sit down and watch a game and we're like, there's no way he can hit a home run again tonight, right? Nah, he said it so many, boom, you know, he hit another one. It's kind of like that with Lynn where yeah. you just couldn't possibly believe he could do it again. And he did. And I'm interested to see the documentary. Did you? Are you part of that at all? Or I don't mean like yes, yeah, okay, yes, good. yes, yes. So, um, Jeremy, I mean, it's it's funny because, uh, gosh, in that year, 2012, that you started off this conversation talking about, um, you know, I was routinely, essentially, begging him to go on the record with me to like, hey, can we do a book together? Can we do all these projects? Because I was 
so deep into that story and that story was so huge and sometimes he would say yes a lot of times he would say no all of the no's i totally understood and in retrospect i kind of cringe at how often i asked him for things i know that because feeling. i was the I one guy feeling, yeah. well it's true yeah i know that <laughs> feeling. Was, I, was, I was the one guy who wasn't on the ground floor of him and so and by the way like we've always had a good relationship but anyway i say all of that to say that you know, um, however many months ago now, he reached out to me and said, hey, will you sit down for this documentary that they're making about me on HBO? And I said, look, if there yeah, is any person on this me. planet yeah. who I who I have to say yes to on this, it's him beyond the fact that I, of course, would have been excited to anyway. Um, so he asked me to be in it and I am. And it's just fun, man. I was not involved in the production of it or the directing of it or anything like that. But I, I got to... Yeah, be a, a witness to what happened and why it still is so resonant today um, in ways that are sincere and kind of mind-blowing. So, yeah. Well, it, it's it's a magical time. So I'm glad there is going to be this doc about it because I think if you didn't live it or you weren't around for it or whatever, you're going to watch it and fall in love with what happened all over again. You know what I mean? Because it was just such an unbelievable world no, and, and, and new york and the new, new york, york aspect yeah. i mean there's so many big overlapping sort of circles in the venn diagram of why this felt the way it did but you know as you as you know as a, as a, as, a, as a new yorker right like yeah. this shit really it really happened on a stage that for all of the for all of the narcissism of new york and new york city which i admit to and also uh will forever uh refuse to apologize for which we fight reality, in western new york here we fight with that you know i know western, i know damn those new york city people go go ahead sorry i know yeah. the buff, no but, but look and, and look the bills the bills are having a lot to say about the uh, balance of power in, sure. in in the new york state area but the idea that this was a stage that objectively had so like an incomparable amount of attention pressure um, a, a, and, and as, as well as just like um, a sad history of like not having these exciting moments in Madison Square Garden specifically right. in that the building Dolan era and everything and people exactly yeah. it, it, that part of it um, to be in the city for that um, I think the film does a good job of communicating the the energy the almost like um, before a mega fight in Vegas kind of energy that accompanied every one of those games where as you said you were like he can't do it oh wait he just knocked out kobe bryant you know like that part of it mm -hmm. um i think i think comes through and, and and you know the media loves when an athlete comes from the ivy league you know i mean how many times do we watch a football game with ryan Fitz, fitzpatrick and I they know. didn't mention he's from harvard probably none right i mean none, every, zero yeah every time it's like a, guy, a quarterback from Harvard. people love that for whatever reason and also to be honest, Jeremy Lin didn't look like what you would expect the basketball 100%. hero to look like, you know? So that was another 100%. fun element. Yeah. That's a huge part of the film, yeah. too, is the perspective of Asian America on this and how it is that he ended up being this character, this avatar, this, like, real-life superhero for, for a couple of weeks and then for all time um because we as a community as a group of people right. just had yeah. never had someone like that sort of like this this sort of combination prom king leading man uh badass waving off his teammates 
on Valentine's Day in Toronto against the Raptors before draining a game-winning three. Like that part of the story, really. I mean, you said it. Like it's it's it it, it just it's just huge, um, and it remains that way. Yeah, it, it's it's October is Italian American Heritage Month, and I'm Italian American. I told you I have a young daughter, and I'm trying to like trying to use this opportunity to teach her some stuff or whatever about where our family came from, things like that. And I'm trying to think of a parallel. Like I know sometimes Italian Americans, there's a certain perception of what we are, what we can be as any group. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to play a victim or anything. Any group, there's certain. And I think Jeremy Lin is a great example of his group wasn't perceived to be a basketball star for whatever reason. I mean, totally. We also had Yao Ming, which I mean. But they're so different, right? right? But I mean, very that's, different. That's the yeah, thing. again, it's, it's almost different. like yeah. Yao Ming proves the point um, because Yao Ming is seven six. He's from China. He's not American. He is almost this like this literal giant. Jeremy is, right. you know, and not it, that. It, it, yeah. is more normal size. You walk past him on the street, you don't think, oh, there's an NBA player. There's a guy who should be good at basketball. You think. In fact, you, you think the opposite just based on stereotypes or based on just a lack of precedent. Um, so, yeah, super different in that way. Well, unbelievable fun. And Pablo was nice enough uh, back then to come on here so we could be a part of the fun. And I can't wait for people to see uh, the documentary about it. You know, it's interesting because next last episode, uh, Jay Mariotti was on the show. Uh, who's a wild mm. um just, i mean just wild <laughs> he's like he's like one of those things you just kind of wind up and then you just like let it go you know what i mean like i don't know if i said more than six words but it was okay yeah but he reminds uh, me of a certain era of around the horn right and sure. you remind me of another era of around the horn you know so it's kind of an interesting <laughs> thing because there was his era with uh the characters that were on in that era, yeah and then there's your era talk to me a little bit about around the horn and and what it's like to be on it and what it did for your career. And I know that's being very, very general, but no, but yeah. uh, happy to yeah. happy to. I mean, so first off, like speaking of like nice round number anniversaries around the horn turns 20 wow. later this year, wow. um, which is wild. People and so there'll be a nice like anniversary thing. Well, of course. Yeah, I remember I mean, this sticking was... up for it. People didn't like it at first. They were all like, oh, they just yell and they're this and they're that. And I'm like, no, that hour of watching that and PTI was like a college staple for me. I and and you know what? History vindicated yeah. you because yep. they have both lasted. PTI yeah. celebrated the 20th anniversary last year yeah. around the horn this year. It's lasted an insane amount of time, given the expectations for both shows early, yep. but around the horn especially. And so when you mention Jay Mariotti, look, I never worked with Jay. My era, as you said, came right after him. Yep. So I started October 2012 on Around the Horn. Um, again, 10 years for me. But my era of around the horn so to speak growing up was of course the one where woody and jay and kalashaw and Mm -hmm. go down the list tj simers like adande bob Bob ryan Ryan. like jackie Jackie. mac like all (laughs) we're thinking back to all of the all of the ogs no and and of course they shaped my perceptions of the show that's the show that i grew up literally grew up watching and so yeah i mean for me you know, you mentioned, and I've never spoken to Jay, but you mentioned what it was like to talk to him. He's wild. For me, doing around the horn, given given the degree of characters that were on them, it felt to me like a the most terrifying phone call I ever received from Reality, um, because I still have the phone call, the literal voicemail he sent, saved on my phone from ten years ago, because it's this artifact of like 
me being so nervous to even pick up the phone that I ignored it and let him leave a voicemail so I could hear it, strategize how to respond. <laughs> right. I've done it. That kind yep. of deal. And uh -huh. and so to be asked to do it was, you know, a very vividly um, you know, recalled memory. Um for me and and it's it felt like climbing into my television you know like this is where all of these characters lived it felt surreal in that way and it ended up being something that was pretty quickly and now for 10 years not just surreal but at the same time like uh kind of like a, a family you know like i got to know all of these people they they all became demystified as much as it was here is the television climb inside. It was like meeting all of these people that I now regard as friends that I've known for so long. And so it was so many things and all of it led to, yes, the career that I have had. That was my gateway drug yeah. <laughs> into mm -hmm. television in a real way. It's the first show that had me on ESPN consistently um, week after week. And that just changed the game, man. It really did. You know, it's interesting because I, like Bob Hoffheimer will tweet like this guy won their 750th show or, you know, that's probably extreme, but you know, he'll tweet these stats and I look at him and think like, wow, like how did that happen? Like how that person's been on that long or the show's been on that long or whatever. It's just these numbers blow your mind. Why do you think it worked? Why do you think it's lasted so long? Like, what do you think it is about it? I know that I sat down to watch it because I love columnists. You know, I was a sports yeah. media nerd and I love sports writers and sports columnists and, and, Back then, it was these people I read on this webpage called sportspages.com, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. And they would just link columns every day, and, and those people came to life. But why do you think it's worked? Why do you think it's lasted 20 years from an inside perspective? Yeah, it's a really great question, and I don't think there's any one answer. I will say that historically, in terms of the evolution of sports media, like it was one of the things that shaped everything that came after. So the idea of, I mean, you, you said it, columnists, here are opinions, informed opinions by people who are covering these games, who write and report about these games. And not just that, they have an edge to their thoughts. I mean, this was like the primordial ooze of takes, you know, like sure. takes now have become this commodified, diluted thing. And it's not ever that around the horn was like tr striving to make museum art from the very beginning. I don't want to make it seem like that was the ambition. But the point was... What there isn't is opinions that actually criticized people and praised people with an edge. I think early on, you know, a lot of sports media, my recollection of it, it was so very rooted in cliches or you would have athletes talk who didn't have the ability or the willingness to actually say something critical. There were so many platitudes and what Around the Horn brought was like this energy and this unashamed opinion and that i think was for so many of the people watching that was their gateway drug but then over time i think what around the horn did was become a pipeline and a farm system for people who were up and coming in the industry it became a place where you could gain legitimacy by by climbing inside this self-aware game show and being laughed at, laughing at others, being made fun of, making fun of others, and then also sharing like actual substantive thoughts. I mean, around the horn over the 10 years that I've done it, thanks in large part to 
the people who work on it and Tony Reale and Aaron Solomon and Josh Bard and down the list of the producers, they have asked for us to, you know, hey, you want to say something that's profound or serious or smart or funny? Our show can be the whole spectrum of of those yeah. genres. And I found it to be a really a really unrivaled platform in that sense where you get any number of things inside of this format that is always designed to yeah to be fun i mean maybe that's it i'm i'm sort of wandering around my own thoughts here right. to answer this yeah. and i'm realizing yeah. that the game show format right the idea that this is silly but it's because it's sports and sports is fundamentally silly but also contains like all of these possibilities for what we might discuss in a given day it's kind of a metaphor for what I love about sports itself. Like, don't take yourself too seriously. But when the time comes, know that sometimes the best thing to do is to speak from the heart or or from the brain in ways that may surprise people. Yeah, I always thought there was a certain level of authenticity to the show, too. Like, I, I, didn't, I don't necessarily love the the morning debate shows because sometimes I feel that they can be very staged where you don't believe that the argument is real. You feel like that there's this made for tv argument like beforehand you can hear him saying like okay i'll say that lebron james is the best you say it's jordan you know where i always felt like that show was very authentic um and also as the media evolved it became it's very clippable you know what i mean so it's really easy to take like the final thoughts part or the you know the uh, an answer here or there and put that out into yeah. social media so it really just the way it was originally created before social media existed was really that, that's that's a you very know, you know yeah. what it's a very good point because something that round the horn did and PTI did too but around the horn really did hone in on was the idea that we understand that the audience's attention span especially over time is only going to shrink and so it's how do you make the most of these bursts of opportunity well, we're going to give you all these different topics. We're going to move through them with pace. We're going to do them quickly. But also it sort of foresaw exactly the internet clippable soundbite era. Um, and so the fact that it was formatted for that, you know, again, back in 2002, it is yeah. absolutely ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know, now it's like, oh, did you hear what, you know, talk to a buddy or whatever. Did you hear what Pablo Torre said about the Tua incident? And, you know, I'm just making something up. It's like, oh, yep. I missed that. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just look on Twitter, put your name in, search, and boom, there it is. You know that? It just it just really lends itself to that really well. Um, so I think that has definitely helped the longevity too. Uh, you also yeah. do, you do a podcast too called The Daily, right? Is that what it's called? I don't want to screw up the name. ESP, ESPN, ESPN Daily, Daily is the full name, but The Daily is how many refer to it. Okay. Yes. That's how it exists in my head for whatever reason, The Daily. No, uh, for many, that's how it exists, yeah. <laughs> tell me about tell me about podcasting. Uh, you know, it's a little bit different than doing TV. Obviously, it's something that I've been doing for a long time since 2011. Yeah, but, and, right. know, it's interesting too because when I started, like Peter King was on the 20th show and he agreed to do it, but he said, "I don't know what a podcast is." You know what I mean? You got to give <laughs> me more information about what you're asking. I'll play ball you are here. So ahead of the yeah, curve and with but podcasting. now and now the challenge is like. Peter King's kicking my ass with the podcast. It gets, you know what I mean? There's so many now. No, I mean, everybody, everybody. Everyone has one, right? So, yeah, what about. Wants or has one. Yeah, but yours is interesting, too, because 
it's it doesn't try to be too long. It tries to be this this thing about maybe one or two things mm-hmm. or whatever's going on. You know, like baseball playoffs are going to start Friday. Maybe Friday show you have Jeff passing on, and you say, "What are the big things going in?" It's twenty minutes, thirty minutes, whatever. It's 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 really great to just look on my app and say, "Who's he talking to? What are they talking about?" Okay, I need twenty minutes on that. Boom. But what before we get too deep into that? What about just making the transition from going? from around the horn and the things you're doing on TV for ESPN to, to stepping behind a mic and doing podcasting and how comfortable or uncomfortable it was or how you felt about it so far. Yeah. So I, I've been lucky to, you know, this whole way through still keep at TV. And so I, I, all of the things I love about TV, I get to still indulge and I'm very grateful for it. Podcasting, you know, by the time I started doing it, which was, I started hosting ESPN daily, um, full time, um, this was, God, I'm a 2022 pandemic two years ago. I, right. My brain is broken mm-hmm. from all of this. Um, so the fact that I started it two years ago, just two years ago, a.k.a. years and years after you did and Bill Simmons did and people who are early to the game. Right. I mean, Simmons for me. Simmons one of the real OGs. And uh, Fantasy Focus, that podcast I remember yeah, listening to. Really no, well. Monster. Yeah. A total, total huge, huge deal. Um, so for me, by the time I started it, um, any of the what the fuck is podcasting stuff had already gone away very, very clearly. And so for me, it was getting behind a mic and broadcasting. And for that reason, I really did love it from the very beginning. I mean, for me, like the idea of talking into a microphone, but also being able to play with the theater of the mind, focusing in on how to tell a story using only you know, one sense, as it were, using only uh, what your listener can hear. Um, I really enjoyed that. I had done a bunch of radio NPR stuff in the past, but never anything in terms of hosting full time. And I just took to it, man. I, I just really find it enjoyable. I love the idea that people wake up and I get to introduce them to something in the world of sports. And you're right. We do a bunch of different things on the show. A lot of what we do, I would say, is, well, I'll also give it two categories. One is, here's us explaining something that's happening in sports that you should understand better or want to like be smarter the, today's about. today's episode, the chess incident. Exactly. Know. Yeah, yeah. So Good today example. was about the chess scandal, yeah. exactly. Or, you know, you mentioned a baseball preview show or something unpacking a, an event that you've heard of happening in the sports news cycle. That is one big category. The other category is where we go longer, usually. And it's here's a story that you probably have not heard at all about that we want to introduce to you. And so for me, I get to do and work out both sides of that equation. I get to exercise muscles that I really enjoy. Um, and so, yeah, man, I really I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and I like to how if, you, if it's 20 minutes, you go 20 minutes. If you need an hour, you go an hour. If you need 40, you go 40. You know, I kind of like that. Changes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I like that part of it. Um, let me hit a few just kind of general topics. I'm just, I'm just interested to see how interested you were in it. Did you get into the Aaron Judge home run thing? Or yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were you, of course. Where do you feel about 62 versus 73 and all that? Like, were they not mutually exclusive to you? Because that's how I was. It's like I still kind of believe. Like, I watched all 73. I know that's like the record, but that doesn't yeah. mean that 61 isn't Americana and iconic and breaking it wasn't huge and awesome and i watched every at bat since he got number 60 uh but what did you think about it yeah i mean i talked to passin about the mvp 
debate between Otani and Judge. It's Judge for sure. And 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 and, and, and so it is Judge. Yeah. And and I I I feel like in that way the home runs are both incredibly impressive but also almost a red herring. And I say it for this reason. The season that Judge is having overall, I mean, it's just arguably yeah. the greatest first, offensive season first, we've first. seen. Yeah. Triple crown, yeah. plus 60 home runs, never been done before. Look at him relative to his peers. So I should say, obviously, like Barry Bonds, if he were allowed to hit by the pitchers throwing to him, right. would have broken all of these records. So Barry Bonds, to me, like it's not that Barry Bonds um, – isn't the true home run king. I I have none of the... We had, speaking about around the horn, um, Bob Ryan and I discussed this taping a show last week, and I think he has more reluctance, unsurprisingly, about crowning Bonds or embracing, celebrating Bonds in that way for the reasons that are obvious. Steroids, PEDs, mm. cream and clear, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I, I am far more of a, like, baseball is a museum. I don't want to try and figure out who was the good guy? Who was the bad guy? Because guess what? Pitchers were also using PEDs when Barry Bonds was using PEDs, yeah, allegedly, right? Mm-hmm. So all of which is to say, what Aaron Judge is doing is just objectively impressive on so many other levels. Like the idea that Shohei Otani is pitching at an all-star level and hitting at an all-star level. And he's doing both of those things. And no one's ever done that before, literally ever. And Aaron Judge even acknowledging that, is still having a better season. I mean, to me, the home run chase was almost like the cherry on top of the Sunday. It's just sort of like the year he's having is truly staggering. And so I was, I loved it. I loved the theater of it. But I also felt like, let's not miss the forest for the trees here. Like the body of work here is actually mind-blowing. Yeah, and he's not winning the MVP because of the home runs, which I think is the misconception in the debate, right? Right. It's because he's first in this and first in that and first there's like thirty categories. You know, he's like gonna win the triple crown potentially. And how much more he's got twenty home runs more than anyone, you know, twenty That's RBIs more than anyone. I mean he's yes. blowing the league away. It's an unbelievable season. It really has been. Um we're four weeks into the NFL season. If I was asleep for four weeks and woke up and said Pablo what happened? What's been the most interesting thing about the NFL season to you so far? Yeah, I mean, I immediately go to the Dolphins. Okay. And I say that because the Dolphins they've were had a little bit of shockingly all of it. Yeah. they've had all of it. Yeah. They've they've the they've comeback. been everything in mm-hmm. one. They've had amazing games like that comeback against the Ravens. They have been shockingly good with a new head coach and a quarterback who everybody had questions about whether he's the guy. They've had the best quote in the NFL in Tyreek Hill. They've had a wide receiver who might be just as fast as him in Jalen Waddle. They've had all of these characters. And then you add on this the scandal or whatever. Co- this yeah. scandal, this yeah. controversy yeah. that that has involved the existential threat or what we thought was the existential threat to the NFL from from five, ten years ago uh, of concussions and CTE and head trauma. And so it's the story that's had everything. And I, I probably start there with all due respect to the good Buffalo one. Bills. Yeah, no, no, that's a good one. But, you know, yeah. I think I think my brain goes to the team that beat the Bills yeah. somehow. Yeah. Um, and also the team that is still grappling with how the hell do you move forward given that it seems like everybody mishandled uh, these concussions to Tua Tungavailoa. So ongoing story, but I think the richest one right now. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Will you get into the World Cup? Um, 
Yeah. Will you? Okay. Because it's sort of misplaced, yeah. right? I mean, it's a weird spot it's on weird. the calendar. And, it's uh, weird. Yeah, but you'll get into it. November. No, yeah. Thanksgiving. A Thanksgiving World Cup is bizarre. Yeah, um, well, very bizarre. But that speaks yeah. to... It speaks to the bizarre nature of the whole thing. Sure. Um, it's the idea that they have to do it because it's in Qatar. Qatar, Qatar is, yeah. Is, yeah. Or yeah. I've, I've heard it pronounced both times. Me I still too. don't know how to pronounce it <laughs> properly. Neither. But but it, it's it's inhospitable to like human outdoor activity um, during right. the summer. Right. And it sort of raises questions about why is it there? And so right. a lot of my questions in terms of coverage will be, why is it there? <laughs> and I think um, there's how probably... Did it, yeah, exactly. Easy answer to and, that. Yeah. And, and so there are investigative questions there, which we will pursue. There are big picture questions about what it's like to host the World Cup in the modern era that we will pursue. And then there's also, of course, just the games and the fact that everybody in the world cares about this thing more than any other sporting event. For that reason, I, I and plus I love uh, the video game FIFA and oh, I just same. have an appreciation for yeah, soccer same. for that reason. Um, I will, we will be covering this and paying attention to it. Absolutely. You know, what's interesting about FIFA too, is there are a lot like uh, the Olympics where they're corrupt. They know they're corrupt and they don't care that you know, they're corrupt. You know what I mean? They, <laughs> they do not care. Like they, they they just swag on into cutter or yeah. whatever you want to call it this winter. And they don't care about your questions or what you think. They, uh, I mean, think about the last few places they've had it, right? I mean, it was in Russia last time. It's, it's wild. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's uh, unsubtle yeah, what's it's, happening. It's wild. And so, and so um, we hope to get to the bottom of some of that corruption um, in our pursuit of covering this. Absolutely. Well, in 2026, it will be here for the first time since I was 14. Well, here and Canada and Mexico, but mostly here. Um, so that will be interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's good. Um, what about the starts of the... Well, okay, wait, before we get to that, baseball playoffs. Um, mm-hmm. Really interesting race, Braves and Mets. Braves end up chasing them down, 10 and a half game, 10 and a half game lead the Mets had at one point. The Braves, I think, are much better than the, the team that won the World Series last year. Uh, the Dodgers have been unbelievable, um, and, and that's what I think really hurts for the Mets or would have hurt for the Braves is that instead of having some time off here and getting ready to play, uh, the winner of the Cardinals series, you now will have to play a three-game, up to three-game series against a tough San Diego team and then play the Dodgers if you survive it. Uh, so really difficult there. Obviously, the American League has, a, re- I think, the best wild-card matchup, which is Toronto and Seattle. For whatever reason, I'm really interested in that yeah. one. I think that will be yeah. really fun to watch. Um, but what about the baseball playoffs? Has your juices going? Uh, has you excited about them to start? It's one of my favorite, I'll admit, one of my favorite sporting events, if you can call of course, baseball playoffs I, sporting events. The, yeah, the, no, the baseball playoffs are fun, man. Yeah. Um, I always feel my interest. I mean, the judge thing, um, it, it, it got me going earlier, um, but the baseball playoffs is really where I, I sort of begin to really uh, – enjoy and sit in the fact that there is just drama every night and for the Mets I mean Mets fans have been feeling that hot seat for for a long time now it feels like so many of my producers on ESPN Daily um, a number of them are Met fans and so I've been I've been hearing their complaints and their cries of agony watching this beautiful season get jeopardized by I guess a classic uh, Mets turn of events. Um, so I am absolutely invested in what the hell the Mets are going to look like. I do want to 
absolutely hear more Timmy Trumpet um, in the postseason. I love, I love the SNY broadcast of that for right. that reason. They turn um, to black but, and white, and then he walks on the field. The, oh, it's yeah, just it's very. Cool. They go to like widescreen letterbox format. They do like split screens. It's tremendous. But in terms of the actual like games, I mean. Look, the Mariners making the playoffs, breaking the longest uh, postseason drought like in sports, um, automatically interested. But the fact is, like the team that is ahead of them and has been ahead of everybody um, comfortably in the AL all year is the Astros. Yeah. And as somebody who wants to make fun of the Astros, but just continues to be awed by how good an organization, a team this has been perpetually, you just have to respect it, man. Like it's it's they one hundred and five. They're at one hundred and five right now, and it's like I I don't look. There's a difference between uh, morality and success, and they are sort of embodying that. Like whatever they did, whatever edge they sought, and clearly they they were uh, worthy of all of our jokes and criticism. Like they're also just really fucking good. And who doesn't and so love Dusty I, Baker? Right? I mean, who wouldn't Dusty love Baker Dusty, is Dusty, the, Dusty Baker win? Right? Yeah. Oh no, his his the toothpick, the character, yeah. Dusty was the perfect manager to hire to yeah. rebrand Absolutely. this team. No yeah. question. Yeah, I think that's the the interesting thing is right is that the Dodgers and Astros have been so good and so far ahead of everyone. You kind of forgot about him a little bit, you know, as we yes. focused on the other things around them. Specifically, I think Judge and then the Braves and the Mets. Um so now it'll be interesting to see um, and, you know, the, the, the 98 Yankees are maybe an example of a team that can they get back to it now? Can they turn the, the switch back on and, and be dominant? Whatever. We'll see. But um, I think it's an interesting playoffs this year with a new format. You know, it's the first time right, with right, this right. format, too. And there's going to be less days off um, in the later rounds. So it's going to be less um, ability to maybe focus on two or three pitchers. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. The sportscasts are here. Uh, with our friend Pablo Torre, who's back. Uh, we missed him, and he's good enough to do this. Really appreciate that. Again, his podcast is called ESPN Daily, and obviously you can find that um, same place you found this. Uh, I'm sure anywhere you want to listen to a podcast, I'm sure you can find ESPN yes. Daily there. And uh, he's on Around the Horn all the time as well. And what else? What else? Is there anything else you want to promote or mention? What else keeps you busy? Uh, there is. Or is that enough? Thank you. Yeah. No, thank yeah. you. It's never enough. <laughs> yeah. It's never enough, Stephen Bennett. It's yeah. never enough promotion. So I, um, I also I also do this show called Debatable. Um, it is a digital show. I host it with Dominique Foxworth. And we have a third friend of the show who comes on. We do it three times a week. It is streaming on ESPN Plus and Twitter and YouTube and Facebook. It is a digital first product that we're proud of and it is different from around the horn and pti insofar as it is far less structured it's pretty proudly chaotic at times but it's kind of i would say this as the end of my elevator pitch it's kind of like you walk into the espn cafeteria and all of these people are sitting around at their own tables and there is one table where it's me and dominique and we're just sort of laughing our heads off and sometimes saying smart things sometimes saying profound things but mostly just looking to have a good lunch hour and so it is streaming live at noon three times a week monday wednesday friday you can also watch it or consume it um via youtube and podcast and stuff but check us out it's a fun time at debatable on twitter makes it that's easy right too yeah if you want to right. if you just go there that would be a good time if you're looking to decide where you're going to watch it obviously they have all the the link tree there and you can you can find it there so debatable very cool show i've watched it uh quite a few times so 
enjoy that. I like the boxes you, and um, it's got a pleasant it's, it's look. From the, and, yeah, it's from the it's from the Eric Ridehome yep, coaching tree, right? And you feel so that. it's from the PTI yep. around the mm-hmm. horn. It's it's the it's the stepchildren of highly questionable. <laughs> R.I.P. Dan Levitard. So that's where we all wound up is is at that cafeteria table exactly. Pablo, do you have any questions for me? Steven, I just want to say that it is always I reminded how easy it is to talk to you, how comfortable your show is as a place for like journalists who have evolved into and mutated into other things to to come and talk and and gas bag and promote themselves, but yeah, also just answer too. thoughtful questions. Um, so I, I my only question is, sure. um, is when you started this yes. a zillion years ago. Um, did you sense that, that the business would be changing around you in the way that it has? <laughs> no. Because you have seen everything yeah. now. Yeah. No. So I started, this is interesting. I outlasted Cam Newton because we, <laughs> we put the, the first show went up the day after he won the BCS title game against Oregon. So, and he's retired now. So we've outlasted Cam Newton, but, um. No, I, I I just knew, and a lot of it was was need. I needed something. Uh, I knew that Crohn's disease was going to put me away from my day job for at least a while, right? You know, and I needed something um, to to do, something to make me feel valuable or worth something, you know, um, to keep me busy, keep my mind off of what wasn't going well. You know, I wanted to try mm-hmm. to make something go well, um, and I just I had read a book over the. Christmas holiday called Death of the BCS by Jeff Patson and Dan Wetzel. Oh, yeah. yeah, and Jason Peter. Uh, and um, and uh, I just sent an email out before I really even had a show and said, hey, are any of these guys available to talk about this book? And Jeff Patson said, yeah, I'll do it. And I said, oh, I better have a show then because <laughs> uh, I have a, <laughs> I have a interview book. So, yeah, I just kind of created it. But I don't know that I had some kind of like outlook that someday it would go from, like I said, Peter King asking me, what is this, to – you know, six out of 10 cars on the road are listening to podcasts or whatever. Now I'm, right. not, I'm not sure I did that all that. Um, but I think I did know that it felt like something I knew I liked them. You know what I mean? And yeah, I, and I yeah, knew that yeah. people who listened to them liked them because I was just a sports radio junkie. You know, I was a huge Mike and the mad dog guy. And when they put that on TV, I'm like, wow, I can watch this on TV. Awesome. You know? And, um, I would go to bed with my, that brown clock radio alarm that everyone had, you know, with on ESPN radio or whatever and fall asleep to that. And uh, it mm-hmm. was just a new way to do sports radio. That's all it felt like to me, you know, so I was just yeah. into that. And and I could be a part of it. No one had to hire me. I could just say, all right, I'm going to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't have to, like, impress a boss to do it or anything. You know, I just had a to- Right. No, that's, you know what, that point, and I do, I do want to commend you on this, um, being entrepreneurial and creating something yourself from nothing is is so not just like hard to do, but the fact that you have outlasted Cam Newton in right. the process yeah. <laughs> is just impressive. I mean, look, the way that I see all of this is like we're moving increasingly to a world in which everybody is going to have to fend for themselves and like start something that you own, that you operate, that's yours. I think that's kind of where the fragmentation, the decentralization of everything is going. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long it's going to take and I'm not trying to get there any faster, but the fact is you figured out that dynamic um, forever ago. And, and, you know, 
I think that's something that you are also ahead of the curve on. So um, I salute you, man. I salute I you that. in being into this stuff before so many other people who are trying to get into it right now. Well, it's at Pablo Torre, very easy, P-A-B-L-O-T-O-R-R-E on Twitter. And watch Debatable, a cool show, at Debatable on Twitter. And, of course, ESPN Daily and Around the Horn as we discuss. Pablo, welcome back, man. Thank you so much. Let's make sure it's not as long in between. I know you got a little <laughs> salty because Yale kept kicking Harvard's ass in hockey. And I had a brother oh, on the God. team. There and you is. were upset there about that. I know. I was that waiting. That was... <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> Uh, no, no, every time, every time Ryan Fitzpatrick is on TV, they mention that he went to Harvard. Yes. Every time I come on with you, you mention how Yale has kicked Harvard's ass in ice hockey, which is only fair. <laughs> so, no, we'll do it again, man. All right, brother. See, Thank it's you so always much. good, man. Yeah. Thank you. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Pablo Torre for being on the podcast today Enjoyed talking to Pablo, welcome back Alright, book club update uh, next week's podcast is going to have interviews with both of these guys. Uh, so let's plug the books. Uh, the first is called The Blood and Guts, How Tight Ends Save Football by Tyler Dunn. Uh, this book is really good. Uh, I've been reading it this week and really enjoying it. Uh, Tyler's a really good writer, and it's a subject I didn't know as much about as I thought. Uh, there's some really great nuggets in here about some of the different tight ends who have uh, been really great at football. Guys like Ben Coates and uh, obviously Tony Gonzalez and Gronkowski and uh, Kellen Winslow Sr., Shannon Sharp. Uh, just some really good stuff in here, and I'm really excited for this book. Excited to talk to Tyler for the first time. Never had him on. So excited about that and excited for you guys to check it out. Uh, the other one is one I'm insanely excited about, and it's The Book of Joe. Trying to Not Suck at Baseball in Life by Joe Madden and Tom Verducci. I uh, haven't heard anything about Tom Verducci, but I'm confirmed for Madden uh, next week. Really looking forward to talking to him. Um, just finishing up Tyler's book, and then I'll finish this one up. Or, and then I'll read this one and get ready for it. But I can't wait to hear Joe's story. Uh, the book came. It's a beautiful book. Uh, looks incredible. Blurbs on the back by Joe Torrey, the first lady of the sportscasters, Jane Levy, as a blurb. Uh, Bob Costas, Howard Bryant. So some really great stuff here, and I can't wait to read it. I'm trying to set something up with Christopher Price on what I thought would be kind of a niche book about the Hartford Whalers, uh, but can't get it going. I, I finally heard back from his publisher, but seems to be a dead end. I don't know if a book's coming or what, so we'll see on that. But I do know uh, that we do have another book to add, and that is uh, Macy versus Ronaldo. Um, and it's by Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson. Um, and it comes out on November 1st. And uh, those guys will be in around then or uh, before the World Cup, which I believe is 1120. Uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to featuring a soccer book. I don't know if we've ever done a true soccer book yet in the book club. 
I can't think of one right now off the top of my head, but I'm looking forward to talking to these guys about two of the greats of all time, and that's like the big debate in soccer, right? Who's the GOAT? Is it Macy? Is it Ronaldo? Uh, I'm not sure. I I tend to to lean towards um, Lionel, uh, and it'd be great to see him get a World Cup victory this year. I think with Italy out, Argentina, probably who I'd be leaning my support towards uh, just because I would love to see him get a World Cup uh, to add to his career. But it's, again, uh, Macy versus Ronaldo by Wall Street Journal reporters Jonathan Clegg and Joshua Robinson, officially uh, part of the book club, and Tyler Dunn's book, The Blood and Guts, and Joe Madden and Tom Verducci, The Book of Joe. So that's where we stand with the book club, and we'll take a break and come back with the author of a book about Pearl Jam called Long Road, that has been part of the book club. We're going to close that one off now and interview the author, uh, Stephen Hyden. Our next guest today is from Wisconsin, and he is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin, Eclair. And he first started coming on back when he was a writer at Grantland. And he's here today to talk about his book about Pearl Jam, Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the soundtrack of a generation. Let's get into it. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Stephen Hyden. Hey, Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very, very good. Beautiful fall day in Buffalo today. Uh, long Road, Pearl Jam, and the soundtrack of a generation. It's certainly been uh, the soundtrack of my life. And I know that's a, maybe sometimes a cliche that gets thrown around, but it's very literal for me. Pearl Jam has been the soundtrack of my life. Uh, I've been to 86 shows now after my uh, run last month. And... Um, this is an interesting thing, and, and I, I, I wonder, I'm interested to hear your take on it because I was talking to my wife about this. It seems like content like this, I don't consume it the way people might think I would. Like, I'm really good friends with some of the guys that do Pearl Jam podcasts, but I don't listen to them that often. Um, I don't read a lot of Pearl Jam books. Of course, I read this one because I invited you on, and I did enjoy it. But I think there's a certain element of it's just so personal to me that sometimes I look at it like if someone were to write a book about my marriage or something or do a podcast about that, you know, that I, I have trouble sometimes re- reconciling why their opinion should matter to me about that thing. And I wonder with you, Pearl Jam or other bands, someone who's so connected to music, do you sometimes feel that way as well? Do sometimes bands or artists or songs get so personal to you that you sometimes tune out? a lot of the discussion about him around you? I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example where I might have avoided a book just because I didn't want it to, just because I thought it might bother me to read a different opinion about how I feel. I, 
I have a different perspective on this, obviously, because I am a music critic. So yeah. I'm, I'm immersed in this stuff uh, in a different kind of way. I mean, I know what you mean, um, because sometimes you, know, you, you can read an album review of an album you love. And if the person doesn't love it like you love it, it can run the risk of poisoning, poisoning the experience, maybe. Uh, for someone, but my hope is with this book that it'll feel like a conversation with another person who really cares about this band. It did, and even if even if you aren't a hundred percent on board with everything I say, that you at least take it in the spirit in which it's given. You know, because it's not as if I'm writing this book and I'm telling you that you should feel this way about a particular song or album. You know. I'm telling you how, how I feel about it. And hopefully the experience of listening to this music with my ears will be interesting to re, uh, Pearl Jam fans. And like, they'll at least get a different perspective on it uh, than they might otherwise had. I mean, my hope is that it, it enhances the experience of listening to this band uh, for people who love the band, as well as for people who maybe liked them a long time ago and fell off or people who have never listened to them. Um, so that's my hope for the book, and I, and I hope that's the experience that people have. Yeah, and I think I was, I was thinking about this earlier. I was like, who exactly is this book for? You know, is it for a fan like me? Is it for a more casual fan? Is it for someone who isn't a fan or, or someone who's maybe a very, very new fan? And I think in a lot of ways it very much straddles the line between all those different things, you know, I, I think for one, I think you disarmed me very early in the preface by kind of saying like, look at, I'm a music critic and I know I can be snarky and, you know, I know that, you know, and you're being a little tongue in cheek about it, but it very much kind of, it was a self-awareness and a self admittance that I think disarmed me and got me um, in the mood for the book. And then you kind of went another step by, you know, the mixtape format which i love by the way because i still love mixtapes and the, the idea of them even if they're mixed playlists now but um yeah, right. you know right away with falling down you know picking that song and it being first you kind of said okay come here come here deep you know deep fan of 30 <laughs> years come on it, you can play this with me you know whereas if maybe it, if it would have been you know even flow or something first i might have right away started rolling my eyes so Right, you right. know, I think what I'm saying here, or if I'm asking a question or just babbling, I'm not sure, but I think it the book did um, do a good job of kind of straddling the lines of who it's for and creating a really broad audience in the sense that you didn't narrow it down to any type of fan. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely uh, something I had in mind as I was writing it. That I, I did want this to be a book that if you're a fan like you, you know, he's been to 86 shows and knows a lot about the band that you're going to get something out of the book that you haven't already gotten from, you know, Pearl Jam 20 or, you know, other things that have been written about the band. Right. I do think that with Pearl Jam, they are the kind of band where even if you're not really a fan of them, you know, likely a few songs and usually it's the big hits from 10, you know, like just casual music fans. You might know, Nothing else about Pearl Jam, but you know the song Even Flow. You've probably heard a live. The video you know, of Jeremy. Jeremy. Yeah. 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 And maybe Better um, Man. Yeah. And, you know, I do use Jeremy and Better Man as entry points uh, for two different chapters. Although I, my hope is that I'm 
I do take it in a different direction maybe than just going over the same sort of standard stories that everyone knows. I mean, early in the book, I talk about like the Mamasan story, which I feel like right. that's one of the most often repeated bits of lore about Pearl Jam. But it's like if you're going to talk about the early days of the band, you have to, you can't ignore that. But it's like finding a way to talk about that where it's not boring, you know, but you're also acknowledging that this is like a crucial bit of, uh, of context for the band's story. Um, yeah, I was always just trying to find creative ways to talk about this band that, you know, one of the theses of the book is that I feel like Pearl Jam in a lot of ways has been, has been misunderstood uh, over the past 30 years. And I think you can have a conversation with hardcore fans about that, but you're also trying to reach out to people that might have a fixed idea of what this band is, and you're trying to get them out of that, you know? So, yeah, yeah it was definitely just trying to communicate, like, on different levels, you know? But, you know, I try that with all my books. You know, it, it's always about threading the needle with different kinds of readers, because uh, people are, you know, however many people read this book, everyone's coming at it from a different perspective so you're just trying to kind of meet as many different people as you can uh with how you approach the book how you write the book uh you know all that stuff yeah and there was quite a few times where i was nodding my head in kind of agreement because any pearl jam fan will tell you that there's been multiple times where they've said to someone in a discussion about them you just don't get it you know or you're missing right. the point or whatever and i think the book did a good job of kind of agreeing with me on that so i like that i'm also really pleased and maybe this is a weird thing but i'm just really pleased it's doing well you know what i mean it's number one in <laughs> women's history uh category yeah, I, I don't understand I don't understand but i was like great we're it's dominating the women's history section yeah i mean we're talking about like amazon the amazon categories are really bizarre because like we're yes how the book should be categorized categorized as music history and criticism like that is where it should be and i think the audiobook is but like the hardcover book isn't i think if it were slotted in that category it would be number one in music history and criticism um i mean you know i think that speaks to uh pearl jam's fan base you know that and this was something even i felt like i had to convince my publisher of a little bit that like there's a lot of people that love this band yeah, they play and stadiums they play stadiums, yeah. and it's like it's not just that they play stadiums because you know a lot of bands play stadiums, and it's like casual bands who you know they're just there because for the event, the thing that, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, because yeah, you know, there's a rock band in town, and yeah. like they're gonna go see it. Uh, and there's certainly, I'm sure, there's people like that who show up at a Pearl Jam show, but like if you go to the show, it's like a pretty committed audience. It's something I usually just see like a jam band shows. Like if you see Fish or the Grateful Dead play a place like that. It's a similar level of thing. You don't get that from a, you know other mainstream rock bands, really. I mean, Pearl Jam, in terms of their following, it really has that level of commitment. So I just felt like if I wrote this book and I did a good job, that those fans would come out and want to read the book. Because there hasn't been like a ton written about them. There was a book no. that came out like a year or two ago. Um, called, uh, oh, I don't need to promote that book, but <laughs> you know, a different but, book, yeah. Well, and you mentioned like what I wrote in the intro, because um, I really want to make it clear that this was basically a, a book of music criticism. That right. this wasn't a biography. Sure. I mean, I, 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 I hope 
that there's things that people can learn from the book that you know that they haven't seen elsewhere. I think that I think there is, especially in terms of putting Pearl Jam in a larger context of just music and culture of the last thirty years, which is something I wanted to do in the book. But like I, but I wanted to make clear in the intro that like you know I'm I'm not writing a biography, you know, because I feel like you know Pearl Jam put out their book uh, in conjunction with the documentary, and it's a very good book. It's great. It's an oral history mm-hmm. of the band, and it's like to do another thing like that would be redundant. I think at this point, even though it's been ten years since that came out, I just felt like, well, this can be a book that. Um, has a perspective that isn't the band's perspective. That is more of like, a, you know, because I consider myself a fan. I'm also a music critic, you know. Um, and again, this is like another instance of threading the needle because I think with a book like this, for, for it to work, the reader has to feel like I, like I couldn't have written this book if I didn't like Pearl Jam. If I was just a music critic and this was just like I'm just anal- you know, I'm just analyzing the band, but I'm not. I don't have a personal stake in it. I think that would be a pretty boring book. But if I was just a fan and I was just gushing about how great everything Pearl Jam has ever done, right? Like if I wrote is, it, <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah, right? Exactly. Like that wouldn't be that wouldn't be great either. You yeah. know, and there are instances like where you know, like oh, I'll say like I like this record. I feel like doesn't quite work, and that's and that's for this reason. And I, like one of the overarching things of the book, and I don't know if you agree with this, but you know, I think Pearl Jam has put out a lot of great albums, but by and large, I think of them first and foremost as a great live band. And I think that if you want to really appreciate where they fit in like the great American rock bands of all time, you have to factor in the bootlegs, like the live work, because I think that is where they really become something special. And that becomes even more, I think, true as their career goes on, like as they get into like the 2000s and 2010s. And that's why, you know, the book, I do talk a lot about the live stuff. Um, And I think, I think in general, like when, when music critics talk about the great bands, they don't factor in the live stuff enough. And with Pearl Jam in particular, I think that is a huge part of their story. And if you were only going to talk about their albums, you really, it, it, it really would be like you'd be missing half something. Story. Yep, you'd be missing something. Yeah, for you'd sure. be missing a lot. Yep. I think. Um, so that was something I really wanted to make a big part of the book um, as well. Um, I mean, there were there were moments when I was writing this where I was like. Like, is this a little too, like, inside here? Because, you know, you mentioned the mixtape format. Like, a lot of the songs I picked were, like, specific live versions, yep. you know, that mm-hmm. some of which haven't been legitimately released. Some of them are just bootlegs, and you can find them fairly easily online. But um, I was like, am I going to be leaving the casual reader too much? But I, I don't think so. I, I, I've, I've gotten good feedback from people who are like, it's taking me like a long time to read each chapter because I'm like stopping reading and Listening. going to listen to different things. Yep. Which I take as compliment. Like I really, I, I'm, I, I love that. Like I hope people, it's great if, they, if you just breeze right through it, but I do love the idea that people are just going to take a long time to read each chapter because they just like want to like, oh wow, this show, I've ne- I haven't heard this show. I'm, I got to stop. I, I got to like try to find this show online and listen to it. 
um, and hopefully it becomes like a rabbit hole, you know, for people. Like you just dive into all these holes because of what's in the book. I mean, that that would make me really happy if, if that ends up being the case. Yeah, well, your wonderful publisher and the people who have been handling this who have been great to me sent me four copies, so I was able to give a few away. And oh, cool. one, one of the people that I gave one to wrote me and said, thank you so much for, for sending this to me because I've learned like five new Pearl Jam songs that I didn't know. You know, is it, <laughs> right. right? Is there anything else? You know, they were looking for more. Is there more of this that I don't know? Um, because I, I think, again, they were missing part of the story. You know, maybe right. they were just focusing on the albums or maybe they just hadn't gone into it as much as someone like me or even someone a little less committed than me, but they just were missing that part of the story and you do a good job of um, introducing it. And and for someone well, like... Go, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, the thing with Pearl Jam is that if you just looking at like the broader like music culture, you know, they are locked in to a fairly narrow period of their career, like what, that, that people recognize them for. It really is like 10 and maybe... <clears throat> Maybe versus in mycology, and my friend and I call them T and Vers. People like that, yeah, T and Vers. They only know the T and the Vs. That's it. Yeah, you know, and and I really think that's that's like the common understanding of this band, unfortunately, uh, just among casual listeners. So that that was something that I felt like this book could maybe help expand people's understanding of the band a bit because. I do think that they have a really interesting career, you know, for a band at their level, the things that they've gone through and how they've conducted themselves. There's a lot of things that are unique to them. Uh, and that was another big attraction for me. Cause you know, there's a lot of great bands out there, but not every band has like an interesting story. You know, some bands are just like good for a long time and they just chug along and there's not a lot of ups and downs. It's sort of a consistent thing. Pearl Jam, you know, they there's a lot of ups and downs with them, and there's a lot of interesting things that kind of shoot off from them if you want to write about them, you know. Uh, so yeah, I, it, it was a fun band to just immerse myself in for the time that I wrote this book. You were talking a little bit about the commitment of the audience and things like that. I was in Toronto a few weeks ago, and I think the second or the third song was Come Back, and I was blown away by just the amount of people singing it. You know, because the song right. like Come Back is from you know the self-titled album in 2006, so it's been a while. It was never a single or anything like that. Everyone in that place knew that song. You know, and everyone right. was singing at the top of their lungs, and it was a really incredible experience where... It, it, it's interesting at a Pearl Jam show, there's a lot more people going on a beer run or a bathroom run during even flow than there are okay. during, you know, sad or something that might right. not be, you know, as known to people who are outside of the community, maybe. Well, and, and I think that speaks to, I'm sure the people that are going to the bathroom during even flow are the people like you who have seen the band. Yeah, I've seen it 80 times. It's a good chance for me to take a break real quick, you know. Although I will say that, you know, Mike McCready, I feel like he he will always play. Yeah, yeah, he'll play like a slightly different solo every time. So, you know, if if you're just like a McCready fan, maybe you're going to stick around. Yeah, that's not the one you want to miss. (laughs) Even if like that is you know, one of the handful of songs that they will play like virtually every night. Like I'm sure there's examples of them not playing even flow, but I, I feel like that's a song 
more often than that, you're you're going to get that song. Yeah, it's nineteen uh, every- out of twenty. I would say. You yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, whereas, like you said, like "Come Back," a song like that, um, you know, if you see this band all the time, a song like that is like a is like a jewel because it's like, oh wow, like it's more one out of twenty. 20 one out of twenty five. Before you yeah. hear that song. Yep. You know. Yeah, you and might I, not, you, have you seen that song live before? Or oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe like around '06. Right. I'm. I know they played it at Wrigley in 2018, which is a treat. I'm trying. I'm. There's a wonderful app called the Pearl Jam Stat Tracker app on iPhones, which I recommend. You can put your shows in, and it gives you a a great chance to keep track of everything. I see them come back nine times, and of those nine, four were in 2006. So five, okay. t- five times since then. Um, a really interesting thing for me anyway is in Toronto, I heard all those yesterdays for the first time. So I was 0 for 85 with all those yesterdays, which, well, I technically I was 0 for 84 because it didn't exist at the first show I was at. But um, I had missed it and missed it and missed it. And it was uh, driving me insane. Um, but finally, that was rectified in Toronto. Thank God. But uh, See, I saw that. I. I I saw that song because I was at the Yield show from uh, 2014 when they when they played Yield in its entirety in right. Milwaukee. Yeah, so, I was at the binaural like, one. Song. Yeah, I was at the binaural one. Um, I think I referenced this show in the book. Were you at the 03 Buffalo show? Oh yeah, I've been to all the Buffalo shows. Okay, that's one that, of the best a, shows of all my 86. That's a, yeah, that's a, yeah. That, that's a great show. Um, and I think I I, I think I write about that because there was like some good. Cause I write a little bit in the book about uh you know how Pearl Jam has they've been there was a period especially in the mid aughts like where they were compared to the to the Grateful Dead mm-hmm. a lot it was really just because of the following not so much about music but I write a little bit about the improvisational aspect of, of what they do and how it compares to actual jam bands and there's a uh, I feel like that 03 Buffalo show has like some examples of like them like actually improvising because and state college the next night too i mean what a weekend right yeah yeah. what a weekend yep yeah yeah yeah. so the uh rock the rock critic in buffalo the rock critic for the buffalo news here uh says that that's his favorite show in the history of our arena which opened in 96 yeah that and the tragically hip show he loves too he always points to as the best shows in the uh the arena, which, like I said, opened in 96. And actually, my first time in the arena was the Pearl Jam show in 96. It's the first time I oh, was wow. there. Yeah. Um, interesting. I want to talk a little bit about Falling Down. I know I mentioned you mentioned it, and you mentioned about how you thought it's one of those Pearl Jam songs that if they had uh, recorded and released it. Now, I know they did record it, I think, two different times. Um, I think No Code and Yield, I want to say. Uh, and we all hope that that will be on Lost Dogs 2 or whatever. Uh, but you say that that's one you think that could have been a huge hit for them. I always, I always think it's sad for that. I don't know what you think is sad, but um, I always thought. And I know well, Je- yeah. Jeff thought that too. That that was. I, I'm still shocked it didn't make binaural, but or why it didn't, I'll never know. But they well, have like, but they have I, a good like binaural has like a bunch of B sides that are um, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are great and that are poppy. You know, and I mean they definitely made a decision not to put like catchy. Yeah, fatal. Like fatal was there. left off. Sad right. was left off. Right. You know, and and really, it makes sense if you look at the, the totality of Benoral. If you look at it as an album, and like 
how that album has a certain mood to it. If you want to just have that mood be sustained, like those songs wouldn't work. But like just from a purely like put the best songs on there or put the songs that are going to connect with people, then it makes sense. But like I understand uh, their logic there for not putting that on. Uh, but yeah, like getting back to falling down, I just thought, you know, cause that's, in, that's the first chapter of the book. And, um, and I should say, you know, you mentioned the mixtape format and, uh, you know, for those who haven't seen the book, each chapter is named after a, a song. Uh, and it's not that the chapter is about that song. I, I it's just using that song as an entry point. Yeah, jumping off talking, point. Yep. Yeah some aspect of, of, of their career and falling down to me was just to me like a, a, a good place to start one, because it isn't a very well-known song and it's a song they only played live once. And it's has a cool mythical reputation, I think because of that. And it just seemed to me like a great metaphor for um, what Pearl Jam was and what they became, which was this band what they were was this band in the early 90s that was very much part of um you know the world of mtv and radio and having big hit songs and you know being at the center of culture and then what they became which was this band that was really about giving people an experience every night that was singular to that night you know you got to see pearl jam tonight because what they do on that night is never going to be recreated and how do you make that transition? And, you know, the summer of 95 was obviously a very tumultuous time in their history. Um, the show that a lot of people talk about from that summer is the Candlestick. Right, uh, San Francisco. Park. Yeah. yeah, San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, where it, And that was four days after the Falling Down show. That was at Red Rocks, uh, June 20th, 1995. Four days later, they play in San Francisco, and you better as Food poisoning. I think they play about seven songs or show That's or so, right. and he's yep. and he's doubled over in pain. He can't continue. And in the moment, a lot of people in the media were almost starting to write Pearl Jam's obituary at that point. Like there were a lot of people's, and even inside the band, there was a feeling that are we going to be able to continue here? I mean, you know, they're they were fighting Ticketmaster, and that Too wasn't bad going didn't well. Listen about that one. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's another, you know, like it's so fascinating to see how the perception of that has evolved because you look back on the Ticketmaster fight and it seems so obvious that Pearl Jam was at the very least had the best intentions, you know, like that they were on sort of the, the side of righteousness. You know, people can debate about whether it was like a realistic stand, if it was sustainable, but certainly the idea that Ticketmaster was a monopoly, I mean, that's just self-evidently self true. And Pearl Jam proved that by being the biggest band in the world, and even they couldn't tour effectively uh, without using Ticketmaster. I mean, to me, that that is the evidence that you need that they're a monopoly. It's like not yep. even a band with the resources of Pearl Jam can do it. Um, but, you know, in the mid-90s, if you read articles about Pearl Jam, I mean, there was a lot of eye-rolling about that stand you know uh, a lot of people just thought that they were being entitled you know, or babies or whatever yeah, yeah. yeah like self-righteous yep. and you know and i write but you know there's an infamous article at least it's infamous if you grew up in the 90s i don't right, know if the rolling Jam stone one 
1996 cover story about Eddie Vedder, which was, it's like one of the most notorious hit jobs, I think, of, or hatchet jobs of uh, recent music journalism. I say recent, meaning like the last 25 years. Um, You know, and like one of the things in that story is that the magazine is basically implying that Pearl Jam was stupid for making that stand because they lost tens of millions of dollars. Right. And if they had just played ball, they would have made like $30 million that summer. And, and it's like, why do you care what they lost? You know, why, like, why is that the concern of, of Rolling Stone? Isn't the larger issue that like they couldn't tour without working with this ticket company? Like, I, why is that something that they should be crucified for? I mean, you know, again, like at the very least, you should say, well, they had the best intentions. They they tried their best. Like we respect what they tried to do. But there was a lot of people just uh, treating them with sustain with with disdain over this, and which just seems, I think, more and more crazy as the years go on. You know, and, and here we are in twenty twenty two. You know, look and like live nation. Yeah, look at the fees you pay now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or you know, they, they have, you know this policy now. The like, airplane seating or the airplane pricing or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. airplane price. Yeah. Like if you if there's a huge demand, they're going to jack up the price the day that the tickets go on sale. So, like they're their own scalpers essentially. Right. Like Bruce Springsteen you had know? to put out a statement right when his tickets went on sale a few months ago, right. or whatever. Like, oh, I didn't you mean know, it or whatever. And Rolltown was just upset about you know like the cost, dollar fifty or two dollar yeah. fee on yeah. a twenty dollar ticket, which relative to the time was a lot. But you know, you just feel like if more people had joined in on that fight maybe things would be different now but yeah you know i i don't maybe maybe the pearl gym up today i don't know who that is could take a stand right i don't know if, i don't know if it's too late or well, not well even but. congress didn't take them seriously right and i think that cameron crow did a good job of sort of showing that in the movie where like they were more interested in kind of fawning over them and getting autographs for their nieces and nephews than listening to what they had to say about the issue it seemed like so, right it's yeah. a very condescending yeah it was really, and really unfortunate and and yeah I, and i think that and they were asked to come there you know it's not like they forced their way there necessarily which i think is also a misconception um but well they also you know the, the thing about that too you know i mean one of the things i think is interesting about the book and maybe this is this will be more surprising to people who weren't alive at the time or don't know much about Pearl Jam, but it really, they really were so huge from about 91 to 96. Yeah, they sold 975,000 really records 90, in a week. Well, and that, and that it even goes beyond the sales numbers. I mean, you know, you talk about them going to Congress to testify and Stone Gossard and Jeff Amen are the ones who testified. But, and I write about this in the book, you know, like the day after Kurt Cobain's body was found, and this was this is a coincidence that it ended up being like this. But Pearl Jam like visited the White House and like we're hanging out with Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton was asking Eddie Vedder like, "How do we respond to Kurt Cobain's suicide? Like, what, what, like what kind of statement should we put out?" Right. And meanwhile, you know, Vedder is trying to see if the federal government will turn decommissioned military bases into music venues. So then maybe that could be an alternative to Ticketmaster. Just the idea of like a rock band meeting with the president. I mean, it's kind of incredible. Like they were like having a summit with the, with the leader of the free world. I mean, there's just no rock band 
today that you could imagine visiting the White House. You know, it, it just speaks to the like the level of prominence that they had, like in a relatively short amount of time, like it just exploded. And um, yeah, I just feel like things like that are totally unique and maybe have been forgotten a little bit. I think it's just worth reminding people like how much stature these guys had and how overwhelming that must have been yeah. at the time. The sportscaster here with Stephen Hyden, the author of a new book called Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation. Excited to have him on. One thing that I took away from the book was I've been a very blessed fan. Um, I was at Pearl Jam 10, which you write about in the Crown of Thorns uh, section. Um, I was lucky enough to be at Pearl Jam 20. I was lucky enough to be at the Spectrum, two of the four Spectrum shows, including, uh, well, in the last two, which was great. I was in the Ben Arroyo shows, which was great. Um, so I've had a lot of great moments with them. And I think one of the main points of the book that I respected and love is that they are a band of moments and that on any night it's capable of experiencing one of those moments. And um, that's what I'll take away f- the most from this book is that you recognize that Pearl Jam is a band of moments and the book is built around those moments. And I think that that was a great angle to take and one that as a huge fan i appreciated and just last month i was able to experience some of those moments you know just like the interesting thing about being there you know i made a point to be there the first show after denmark i drove as a 20 year old from buffalo to virginia beach just because i wanted to be there for them I i know it didn't matter they didn't know but it just felt like you know that was somewhere i wanted to be i wanted to be supporting them that night and making sure they knew that i was appreciative that they fought through the most terrific moment of their career. And uh, I was there to be a part of it. And um, so I appreciate that. And I think that is that what you take away the most from your journey through the band, that they are abandoned moments and that the moments are maybe more important than any album or song or show itself. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I think I was just trying to write a book that wasn't going to just regurgitate about the band. So just, trying to dig throughout the history and single out the things that I think are interesting and writing about them and, and hopefully giving people like a lot of different ways that they can appreciate, you know, the span throughout, uh, you know, the last 30 some years. Do you have a favorite moment personally? Well, yeah, I mean, I didn't write about this cause I, I, I actually wrote about this in a, in a different book. Uh, I, I hadn't seen them for a long time. Uh, before that show, I'd fallen off and caring about them uh, for a while. And then I, I really started to reconnect with like my Pearl Jam fandom, like in the early 2010s. And I went to this show with my friend, Mark, who's like one of my oldest friends. And for those, for people who are familiar with that show, you know, there was like a rain delay that like was three hours in the middle of the show. And like, I think it was around nine that the show was paused. And right. Wrigley and Field 2013. They were talking talking about, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, my friend and I, we hung in there. We had like a great time. We were just, and uh, it was just really special. And so, yeah, that that really stands out in my mind as a special Pearl Jam moment. Do you have a favorite song? Um, it's hard to pick a song. I mean, a song that I really love that would be among my favorite songs that I wanted to make sure that I wrote about is is, is Footsteps, oh, which is a B side. Yeah, it's part of the Mama Son yeah tr- uh, trilogy and. And I especially love, I mean, there's the version that was released on Jeremy's single, which was recorded 
um, on the uh, talk show Rake Rock Line, which I write about in the book. Uh, yeah. And there's the version two that's on uh, Lost Dogs where they put the harmonica on it. Not as I'm good. Not as yeah. Not as good. I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, Agreed. But that song really stands out. It's a favorite. Uh, but then after that, there's like probably 20 other songs sure. I could mention. Sure. Do you have a favorite album or bootleg that you a show you like to listen to the most? I'm just curious because I know you went through this rabbit hole of writing this book, and I just wonder, coming out of it, you know, some of your favorite things you'll take away. Songs. Yeah, shows. I mean, I love, as far as like a live show, you know, a, a show I go back to all the time is the Phoenix show from the 2000s why that show has always stood out to me i never see people talk about that as like which one, one of the phoenix great pearl what year 2003 time, but, um i 2000 go oh, 2000 oh the 2000 uh, one right okay right before pearl jam show. time yeah yeah and uh the version of long road that's uh from that show is also on the the, the touring band dvd mm. in the, in the, i love that dvd and uh, I love that version of Long Road. Obviously, I called the book Long Road, so that yeah. song means a lot to me. Um, I love, you know, I love that uh, Boston show from '03 where they play the acoustic set sure. beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that that that's pretty phenomenal. Um, I mean, the Yield show, uh, 2014. From, yeah, the yeah. Milwaukee show that I was at. I, I love that show. I mean, I've, I was listening to that recently, and uh, that's a phenomenal show so i mean but yeah but there's like a million bootlegs i love um i mean there's a bunch of 92 shows i could mention i again you could like kind of get into uh this could be like a three-hour show <laughs> on for sure meddling off, uh, yeah. bootlegs. <laughs> do you have a white whale song in terms of pearl jam shows is like we talked about my insufferable chase for all those yesterdays is there a song that you uh hope to hear that you haven't at a show um man think i mean i'm tempted to say falling down it'd be amazing yeah that would be down. that would be great that would i'm with you maybe on that that's one. the ultimate yeah. one well uh yeah i'll just i'll throw that one that's good there. you know what's crazy for me is that i've always said that anything is in play at a pearl jam show that you know like i went to wrigley in 2018 they played evil little goat you know like i mean whatever that is it's nothing <laughs> but what you know like anything is possible sure but I never right. thought that Angel would be played. And it goes into what you wrote about with Dave A. in the book. And I had heard Eddie Vedder talk a few times about how that that was kind of his song and he's not in the band anymore. I never thought that would be played again. And then on a random Saturday afternoon, they're playing a festival in Colorado. And I open my phone and it's like they just played Angel for the first time in 20 years. You know, right. and killed it too, by the way, which is amazing. But um, <laughs> so if Angel can be played. I think falling down could someday be played as well. I mean, why not, right? Um, well, you know, if I if I want to feel grandiose, maybe the fact that it's in this book will put it out in the ether. Yes, and, like they'll be inspired to play it again because there's a, some dude wrote a book and they mentioned this song right about, and he wrote a, a bunch about it. Well, you talk about that too about how they've become this like band that it shouts out to people and things get back to them. So. You know, if Johnny's uncle's cancer gets to them and they play Light Years, why can't Steve Hyden wrote about falling down beautifully? So let's get that to them and have them play that because there isn't a program yeah. fan that exists. Look, at there's so much fun about this band and about this book that I regret. We spent five minutes talking about the one unfun part. So that's on me. 
Uh, but Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation is a beautiful book written by Stephen Hyden, who's written a few I love. I love, um, if you're looking for another book by Stephen that isn't necessarily about Pearl Jam, your favorite band is killing me. Uh, gets my strong recommendation. It's one I love to read and love to talk to you about when we did it. Maybe around 2013 or 14, probably in that range somewhere. Um, you know, yeah. you know better than me, probably on that. It was, that came out in 16. So okay, it was a 16, bit after a little bit after yeah. that. Yeah, but it's a great uh, one to pick up. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, what what else do you want to promote? What do you want people to know about you and your work and where they can find it and where they can listen to it and consume it and all that? Go ahead. Um, I, let's just keep the focus on the book for now. I don't okay. need to uh, hawk anything else. So okay. yeah, just pick up the book if you uh, if you're so inclined. I, w- I would really appreciate it. Yeah, and of course there's physical versions. I'm holding one in my hand. There's e versions and an audio version as well. So um, whichever way you consume books and wherever you consume them, you should be able to find it. And again, it's long dro- long long road Pearl Jam and the soundtrack of a generation. Thank you so much, Chris. Do you have any questions for me? Okay. Thank you so much for being on, Stephen. I appreciate it. I want to thank Pablo Torre and Steve Hyden for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can listen to this episode and all episodes of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can find me on Twitter at sports underscore casters and email me thesportscasters at gmail.com. Now, also on that same feed is the 24-inch podcast, and it's back. After a long hiatus, the 24-inch podcast with myself, Dave Rollins, and Paula Bennett is back. Uh, for more information, at 24-inch podcast on Twitter or 24-inch podcast at gmail.com for emails. Uh, we had our first episode about Sika and Saturday night's main event from October of 1987. Paula's like the star of the show, and Dave and I are on it as well, but it's really Paula's world, and we're just living in it. Uh, we try to do it every other week, and it's back, uh, like I said, and we're excited about that. Don't forget to check out Greetings from Allentown um, with my friend Peter Winston at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. Uh, Peter and Keithy are there to talk about the WWF from 1992, as they've been doing, and it's always a great listen uh, with Greetings from Allentown Live with Keithy. Uh, but I will admit that I do miss the original show quite a bit. Uh, I used to love listening to Peter by himself, just ranting and uh, talking and teaching me really about stuff from the different territories. And uh, although I love Keithy, I do have a soft spot, soft spot in my heart uh, and miss that show a bit. All right. One last thing for me today and October means it is Italian American Heritage Month. And chances are you maybe didn't even know that, uh, but Uh, Every October is a chance for Italian-Americans, all uh, 19 to 26 million of us, depending on what census you're reading, uh, to celebrate our heritage and uh, the fact that our 
parents or grandparents or great grandparents, whoever it may be, uh, made the sacrifices they made to uh, travel from Italy to America uh, to make it possible for us to exist and have better lives. Uh, I know I've told this story on the show before, but since it's Italian American Heritage Month, I'll tell it again. Uh, My great-grandmother was born in the United States at around the turn of the century, uh, and her mother was no fan of the United States, so took her back to Italy, and she didn't return until right before World War II. Now, since she was born here, she was a U.S. citizen and was able to come freely, but her daughters uh, were not allowed. Uh, She had to get to the United States and to... Uh, go through whatever processes were available at the time and get the permission. And when the permission came very closely to the start of World War II, uh, my then 12-year-old grandmother and her four-year-old sister uh, boarded a boat in Italy by themselves and took a -a two-and-a-half-week boat ride uh, to Manhattan and to Ellis Island, uh, where they then were united with their mother, and they moved to Buffalo and started their lives here. Uh, I can't imagine the courage needed at 12 years old uh, to get on a boat with strangers uh, for several weeks and travel across the ocean with your four-year-old sister as your responsibility. Uh, And my grandmother was brave enough to do that, and uh, that's why I'm here and why I exist, because of her bravery. Uh, And that's a big reason why I named my daughter Paula, because the the bravery and the, the qualities that she have had and lived with our son that I would love for my daughter uh, to have as well. And I hope that uh, the Paula today can equal the Paula of yesterday. Um, And it's things like that that make me love being Italian. I'm proud to be Italian. Italians helped build this country. Uh, They did jobs that nobody else wanted to do. Uh, They worked very hard for their families. And family is everything to Italians. Sunday dinners, uh, Nonos and nanas slaving over the stove to make sauce. And, uh, you know, just because they want the family to be together, uh, nothing makes an Italian grandma happier than feeding uh, their Italian grandson or granddaughter. Um, And it's interesting for me because my great grandmother died in 95, or excuse me, 97, and my grandma Paula died in 95. And a lot of the traditions and things died with them. Uh, That generation was really the generation that kept the family together um, and made sure that there were things like Sunday dinner and extended family reunions and family parties and things like that. And I really come from a relatively small family, especially for an Italian one. Uh, And as those grandparents passed away and traditions became just memories, I feel like the Italian heritage in my life started to slip away a little bit. Uh, And what was so important to me as a kid and being Italian became less and less important to me. And um, in 2006, when Italy won the World Cup, that was kind of a spark. But really, it was 2021 when Italy won the Euro that I really had a cultural awakening. And it became very important to me to make sure that my daughter uh, knew that she was Italian and knew what it meant to be Italian. And we've spent uh, the last year or more learning Italian card games like Scopa 
and uh, learning to cook Italian food at home and uh, learning about what certain holidays are like in Italy, like Christmas and talking about Italian history and um, Italian culture and just learning as much as we can and, and being proud of being Italian and making sure that my daughter knows uh, that that's a big part of who she is and why she is and telling stories about Grandma Xenia and Grandma Paula and how things were and what she missed. Um, and October is a huge part, a huge time uh, to step back. And every night so far in October, Paula and I have found out something about Italy, uh, learned a new word. Um, you know, I've been saying Tiamo, which means I love you to her since she was so little. And she has a shirt that says Tiamo with a couple hearts on it. And I love to see her in it and she loves to wear it. And that was the shirt that she had to wear the day I came home from the hospital. Um, cause she wanted to be in that, uh, for me. Um, but just, it's a great month and, um, I'm very proud to be Italian and I'm so very appreciative uh, that my grandmother uh, was brave enough to get on that boat uh, and strong enough to spend two weeks on it with her four-year-old sister and to come across. Uh, and, I, and I'm proud that she wanted nothing more than to be a mother and had my mother and my aunt and my uncle and um, instilled the values of being Italian in me. Um, the years that I had her before I lost her to Alzheimer's. Uh, which really happened in like 88, but she lived until uh, 95, really a shell of herself when she passed. Uh, but I just appreciate very much what she did and the sacrifices she made and that all Italian Americans made. Um, and I'm proud to be Italian and I'm proud to be raising, you know, a third generation Italian American. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. We'll be back in a week or so uh, with Tyler and Joe. Ti amo.